I'd like to welcome everyone to the Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event covering exploring the implications of the coronavirus in real time. All participants will be in listen-only mode. At this point, I'd like to hand the program over to Greg Fleming, President and CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management. Greg? Thanks, Joe. Welcome, everybody, to a Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event. A warm welcome to our clients, our employees, and other friends of the firm. At Rockefeller Capital Management, we are focused on many things during this historic time in the world, but two touchstones anchor us every day. One, the safety and security of our employees and their families, and two, continuing to provide best-in-class advice and counsel to our clients to help all of them navigate the shocks being created across their lives during this crisis. Most of our employees are working remotely from home to ensure their health and safety. We have a world-class digital and technology team that provides the platform and the capabilities for us to seamlessly work remotely and continue to meet all the needs of our clients. I wanna thank our clients for the many questions you submitted in advance of this call. Within the limits of the hour we have dedicated today, we have done our best to ensure we address as many of these as we can. We aren't trying today to provide a COVID-19 primer for specific medical advice. We are instead looking to explain the situation today, both in the United States and around the world, and utilize that framework to discuss implications from an economic, public policy, and investment perspective. At an individual level, Dr. Varn will talk about the virus and who is most at risk. One thing that is clear is that our personal actions will have a significant impact on the severity and duration of the public health crisis. Whether you are 20 or 90, each of us, each of us must practice social distancing and behave from that vantage point as if we could potentially be carrying the virus. As we indicated in our invitation to this event, we have two guest speakers that I will introduce and moderate discussions with. One, Dr. Miles Varn, coming from the medical side of the equation, and the other, Jimmy Chang, addressing things from an economic and investment lens. I will start with Dr. Varn and then move to Jimmy. Just to make it fair and round it out, Jimmy will, in turn, will turn the table, tables and ask me a few questions at the end to allow me to try to pull it all together. Dr. Miles Varn is an individual we're very fortunate to have on the call today. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Pinnacle Care. He served on the Pinnacle Care Board of Directors for 13 years. Prior to his appointment as CEO, Dr. Varn served as the Chief Medical Officer for Pinnacle Care. And in that role, he developed relationships with top centers of excellence and physicians around the world. He joined Pinnacle Care after 15 years of innovation and leadership at Nanova Fairfax Hospital, a level one trauma center with 75,000 patient visits per year. Dr. Varn was awarded the Inova Health Systems Service Excellence Legend Award for Extraordinary Patient Care. He's a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, American Academy of Family Physicians, and he has his medical degree from the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Now, before Dr. Varn and I start discussing the medical side of the equation here, I wanted to ask Dr. Varn to describe in a minute 
Pinnacle Care and the partnership they have in place with Rockefeller Capital Management to serve our clients and our employees. Welcome, Dr. Varn, and if you could start uh, with the description of Pinnacle Care and Rockefeller, and then you and I will get into the substance of the dialogue. Yes, thank you, Greg, and thank you all for inviting me into your homes for a few minutes. I, I wish we were in the same room and could be having a conversation, but for obvious reasons, uh, we're not. So I know you're anxious. I know this has been disruptive. What I hope to accomplish is to arm you with facts to let you know what you should be concerned about and then hopefully reassure you about what you shouldn't be concerned about. But before we get started, uh, just a little bit about Pinnacle Care. We are a health advisory company, so we help families and individuals um, interface with the health system in an effective way, in a way that brings you intelligence, access, and best of resources that our healthcare system has to offer. We're very happy to have um, developed a relationship with Rockefeller over the past year or so. And as part of that relationship, we uh, intend to bring on an ongoing basis intelligence to both the employees, but also the clients in terms of being able to push updated information out to you to be able to allow you to access through email our medical directors for questions um, and to be um, constantly updated regarding what you should know about and maybe what you shouldn't worry about so much. So um, thank you again for having me here. Great, uh, thanks Dr. Varn. Uh, why don't we start uh, at the beginning uh, where everybody's focused, uh, which is, um, you know, how we got here, the origin of the virus, its transmission around the world, how this compares with past viral outbreaks, and uh, what it is about this virus that's made it so different and created uh, this uh, global pandemic in this unique situation we're in. Yeah, so, so every pandemic has two characteristics. The first has to be a jump of a virus from an animal to a human. And that happened um, bat to human in um, Wuhan in China. The second element is it has to spread person to person. And obviously that uh, was evident fairly early on in China. Um, this virus, which is called a coronavirus, as you well know, is very similar to the SARS virus and very similar to the MERS virus, um, two viruses you, you may have some familiarity with. The difference is with SARS, the, the lethal, lethal rate was 10% and with MERS is 30%. So in some ways, by, by virtue of being more deadly, um, it was able to wipe out the host and the, the spread um, slowed because um, it was just more, uh, more dangerous. With this virus, if you look at the kind of infectious rate um, we, we talk about it in terms of R0, but what that means in this case is the R0 for coronavirus is 2.5, and that means every person who gets the virus will spread it to 2.5 people. You contrast that with influenza, seasonal influenza, which is what we all are familiar with, the R0 or the infectious rate is 1.3. And what that means generally is for every eight people who are infected, nine more people will get infected. So um, it, it's obviously more lethal, 
um, if you look at the incidence of it, 1.4% of people across all age groups um, have have died from this virus. And if you contrast that with influenza, the rate's 0.1. So this is more lethal. Um, however, if you look at the bigger picture in this country alone, 36 million people have been infected with influenza. 370,000 of those have been hospitalized and 22,000 people roughly have died of influenza. So, you know, in, in contrast, this disease um, is in some ways, from a population perspective, more of a threat because we don't have immunity to it, and, and many of us do have immunity to influenza. But on a population basis, actually, influenza um, is a worse disease. Dr. Varn, can I ask you, uh, following up on that, based upon the cases to date, um, you know, a couple things. Uh, what are the symptoms? Uh, which groups are at greatest, ri greatest risk? Um, and one thing that, uh, that it isn't getting a lot of attention now, which I think would, would help people feel uh, less of a sense of panic, isn't it true that the overwhelming percentage of people either never experience severe symptoms uh, and may not even know they have the virus or they recover quickly as, uh, uh, you know, I thought Tom Hanks, uh, his post on uh, social media, he really did that to tell people that he had it and that it was, you know, really wasn't uh, debilitating for him and now he's better. Um, can you kind of walk through all this so people are aware of it? Yeah, absolutely. The good news is 80% of us who get infected will have mild symptoms and will recover without ever needing any sort of hospitalization. So there are more people in that group, obviously, than in the group that will need um, other, other treat treatment choices. So the other fact that we know is about 14 percent um, walk around without ever having symptoms, and, and many of those are, are children. So the good news is children are, are largely spared from this, and most of us will recover and move on with our lives and will have immunity at that point. In fact, if you look at the cases as of this morning in the U.S., there were 14,090 cases. 14,026 of those are considered mild. 64 are considered serious or critical. So who, who are the people who should be um, concerned more than others? Um, unfortunately, this is one that uh, is not so friendly to older people. And, and you may not think of yourself as older if you're 60 years old, but in fact, the risk groups start at 60 and become more of a concern as you get older and older. The other groups that are um, should be concerned are people with cardiovascular disease, that's hypertension or, or coronary artery disease or vascular disease of any kind, and people with pulmonary problems like emphysema or asthma. Those folks really need to be concerned about isolation, social distancing, and in fact, you know, all of us are really doing this, um, disrupted our lives in a mission to save those folks from ending up with critical care needs um, and overwhelming the system. So we're all really working together here to protect those who are at risk. 
Dr. Barn, can I ask you the, the status of the virus in, uh, in, in Europe uh, uh, and in Italy in particular, it's been uh, in particularly so hard hit. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and then maybe extend that to the U.S.? Yeah, so Italy, um, you know, unfortunately waited too late before they took measures to distance people. And, and I think you probably read about it. They, the people just didn't take it seriously and they continued to go to the cafes and to, to socialize um, freely. And, um, you know, unfortunately, as this starts to spread, if you remember the one person infects 2.5 others, you know, if you look at it mathematically, that just becomes a snowball. And unfortunately, um, they didn't act soon enough. And as a result, uh, they pushed beyond the capabilities of their critical care system. So they don't have enough ventilators. They don't have enough critical care beds. Europe has had a head start in the U.S. as well and that we've, we've prepared, maybe not as fast as we should have, but pretty much, you know, most places are locked down in terms of social distancing, in terms of restaurant and bar closures. And the whole goal is to um, to keep this from exceeding the threshold that would uh, consume our critical care bed needs such that we wouldn't be able to provide those needs for those who actually are in a position to, to benefit from them. So, it, it's not at the point yet where it's peaked, and it's going to take more time, which I'll talk about in a minute, but, um, but we're all pretty much in the same state, Europe and the U.S. And then, uh, you know, people, there's been a lot written about this, uh, particularly, obviously, China, but, you know, if I list a few countries that have, uh, have had uh, less of an issue, you've got uh, not just China, but South Korea, Singapore, and, and what's getting a lot more attention is Japan, because they seem to still be out in big numbers, uh, and yet they've had no spike in cases. Can you talk a little bit about why those places are different? And some of it, I know, is around the social distancing. Yeah, so, so Singapore is kind of the model. Um, I think they were prepared. Uh, they saw SARS uh, years ago and prepared their, their, their society for the inevitability of another pandemic. So they have more isolation, isolation beds, more places to put people. And their approach has been anyone who tested positive was hospitalized. And anyone who was a contact of those was quarantined at home to the extent that they have to check in via text three times a day. And, and the text indicates their location. So they locked down where the contacts were, where the threats were. And it's been very successful. The same thing is true in, in uh, Taiwan and uh, to some extent in Hong Kong as well. In Japan, in, um, in South Korea, they took completely different approaches. Uh, Japan um, decided to lock its border early and to keep the cases from coming in, whereas South Korea went to, to testing. You know, they prepared, they tested everyone, they traced down contacts meticulously and uh, self-quarantined, et cetera. So Japan's only done uh, roughly 1,800 tests of the coronavirus. It's con contrasted with South Korea, who's done somewhere around 65,000 tests. The reality is ultimately both strategies failed uh, as standalone strategies. In both cases, Japan and South Korea, they've had to go to social distancing 
uh, some of the things that we've done. Um, so we learned from both of those, but uh, you know, essentially what we're doing in this country and what Europe is doing is what's required to stop the spread of this disease. Well, that leads us to uh, uh, something that is the source of speculation everywhere. Uh, and, and you know, everybody's become an expert on this or has a projection, uh, but uh, our clients and, and our employees and our friends would like to hear from you with expertise on the trajectory from here in the U.S., uh, given what's going on now, how do you see it unfolding based upon the research you see and your own uh, expertise? Yeah, so there was a, a good study published this week out of the Imperial College in the U.K. Um, by a researcher named Neil Ferguson, who's a pandemic expert. And what he created was a model based on certain assumptions, and, and that model predicted how we would manage in terms of our critical care resources, both in the UK as well as the US. And what it said was that, unfortunately, mitigation was not going to work. So mitigation would mean that if you're sick, you stay home. If you uh, think if you have a risk factor, you traveled somewhere, you stay home, the, the uh, at-risk people isolate themselves. Um, if you run those models, uh, and we had continued to sort of keep things open, restaurants and bars and so forth, then it was, it was evident from the numbers that we were going to exceed our critical care capabilities by eightfold. So that's when everything changed in terms of our lives uh, this past week. What, what the model said would work is suppression, and suppression means doing all the things we're doing, which is staying home, limiting our contacts, um, closing down restaurants and bars. And with that strategy, um, if, if it's effective, and we, we do believe it'll be effective, then we stay under the critical care surge threshold. We, we never exceed our capability to take care of the people who need it. And, and what happens is you'll see a peak somewhere around late April, a peak in cases. And then we'll, we'll start to turn the, the corner and the number of new cases will go down on a daily basis from that point. And if you draw the, the graph all the way out, somewhere around late June, we, we finally get to the point where we're seeing no new cases per day. So that that's the good news. I, I think the you know, maybe the question is, you know, what happens after that? Um, you know, if you let people go back onto the streets and, and to, you know, do their their jobs and so forth, fortunately, we will be able to see what happens in some of the other countries ahead of us, um, and that'll, that'll help guide us. Um, and it does give us time to look at vaccines and medications and things that might be more effective um, so what happens after July is a little uncertain, um, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot of hope that we will, as a country, be able to solve this problem, um, you know, not, not long after that. Yeah, and, and the, the follow-up on that is, um, and this might be, we're doing it now, but uh, on the trajectory you laid out where people, where the number of cases get, new cases get down, you know, in the, June timeframe to virtually none. Is it possible then to um, foresee a situation where, with uh, 
social distancing and, and, and maybe masks and things, uh, as in Japan, you can have more of a ordinary course existence. Yeah, I, I mean, there's no question, um, you know, it, it works. It, it's obviously a huge inconvenience, but um, it works. And, and the models actually prove that, you know, the data, if you, if you look at the assumptions, I think the criticism is some of the assumptions and the, and the critics would say, uh, fortunately for us, that this may not peak as high as it is predicted to, and it may be over with sooner than July or late June. We'd all love that, um, but certainly uh, it's going to work. Yeah. And, uh, Dr. Varn, can you uh, talk uh, uh, again, because it'd be good for people to hear this directly from you. What is effective social distancing? Uh, it, you know, how much uh, uh, distance and, you know, right now we've got with, with you know, the, the amount of fear that's out there, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, of things in the, in the universe. I mean, I was reading about somebody saying you could walk your dog, but you couldn't walk your dog closer than, I don't know, 10 or 20 feet from somebody else. But what are the best practices around effective social distancing so that uh, individuals who are asymptomatic, but anybody could be a carrier now, can avoid infecting others? Yeah, that's a great question. So most of the spread is going to be from particles in the air, you know, one infected person to a non-infected person. Uh, there, there's less evidence that this spreads through, you know, contact on surfaces and things like that. So the recommendation is six feet. Um, you know, the, the trouble you have to re remember is you've got all these asymptomatic people who are carriers. They may seem perfectly fine and they may feel perfectly fine. But they could infect you. But but the the theory is, if you're six feet away, you know you can talk to them, you can walk your dog, you can ride your bike, uh, but you don't want to be any closer than that. You know, and and I would say also, you know, you have to limit your kind of your household pools. You know, if if your if your children are going to play with other children, you really need to limit that to to one family, and those families need to be very strict about not having others into their contact universe. That's helpful. Um, you know, one of the, the things that uh, that there's been a lot of discussion about, and I've heard dramatically different answers on this, uh, so again, helpful to all of our listeners, heat. Uh, does heat or humidity or both uh, stop the spread of the virus? Will the summer months be very helpful to us? Uh, you know, I did see somebody actually do the analysis by latitude and by temperature and humidity. They plotted the number of cases among the 200,000 so far. And it's a striking, uh, hey, you know, it's a striking study or, or analysis. Now, uh, it, it may not be dispositive, but um, very few of the cases are uh, at latitudes below a certain level and at temperatures and humidity above a certain level. Is that, is that going to change or does that indicate that the virus really doesn't link heat? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Greg, so in the lab, the virus does not survive as long in particles, you know, meaning saliva or airborne, in heat or humidity. So, so we know that's a fact. And we also know sort of the 
seasonality of influenza is such that it does uh, tend to, to burn out as, as, as it warms up. So the, the, the hope is that that'll be true of this virus, but the, the truth is we just don't know. Um, and you know the, the evidence that's out there may just be anecdotal related to the fact that the virus just hasn't spread into those warmer um, environments. But you know, again, if this follows the typical pattern, then we may see a, a quicker drop off as it gets warm. Well, that would be welcome. Um, what about Dr. Varn on the, um, uh, you know, as we move to the other side of the equation, the, the, let's start first with remedies to treat the virus, and then we can get to the more fundamental question around uh, vaccine. Uh, the prospect for remedies, again, you read a lot about this, drugs that were on the marketplace for other diseases seem to be helpful with the virus. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, so there, there's some good news there. There's a drug um, in study now called uh, remdesivir that actually there, there was a case study in the New England Journal uh, that came out this week. The first patient in the U.S. who contracted the virus was treated with this drug um, given by IV and essentially was oxygen dependent and the next day was no longer oxygen dependent and essentially asymptomatic several days later. So, so there's a lot of hope for that, and, and uh, I think the compassionate use standards are being relaxed um, to allow that to be used for some who are uh, who are ill and on ventilators. So that's good news. Um, there are formal tests going on with other approaches. Uh, I think I saw today about 20 different clinical trials for other different antivirals, and, and we'll know reasonably soon which ones are succeeding, which ones uh, are failing. The other drug um, is chloroquine, which is an old malaria, anti-malaria drug. There's a, a, a sort of analog of it called hydroxychloroquine, which is a little safer. And in studies in China, that's been shown to slow the, the uh, virus replication to actually, um, we've seen improvements in the lung scans of patients and fever's gone away sooner. So, so there is hope for those who um, are in that position of needing, you know, more intense resources. Um, but ultimately, you know, what we're looking at is, is a vaccine. Once we have a vaccine and we uh, are immune, then this problem will go away. Dr. Varn? Oh, hi, Greg. It, sound, it sounds like you're back. Yeah, it looks like we dropped out for a second. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yep, uh, back. What Sorry I was about. saying, Dr. Varn, can, can we go to the, the vaccine uh, side of the equation? And, and can you do two things for us here? Can you talk a little bit about sure. uh, how vaccines work? And we've read a lot about their 12 to 18 months in, in duration to get a vaccine. 
you know, what, what causes uh, th that kind of time frame? And given all the focus on this, is it possible now uh, to have the time frame truncated and, and have uh, a vaccine on a shorter timetable that, that kind of comes to the rescue? Yeah, and I, I think there's certainly hope in that regard. So there is a vaccine trial underway, started March 16th, uh, 45 patients in Seattle. It, you know, vaccines, um, the way the FDA requires, have to be proven, you know, safe, and you have to get the effective dose. Those are sort of phase one, phase two. Um, you know, and some of this goes back to 1976 when we came out with a vaccine and quickly gave it to people, rushed it to market, and and, and a number of people suffered from a condition called Guillain-Barre. So we don't want to get it out there too quickly without proven safety. So, so there's three groups of patients in this study, and the, each group is getting a higher and higher dose. And they get one dose, they get one vaccine at day one, and they get another vaccine at day 28. At day 57, which is around mid-May, they'll draw blood and look for antibodies to the virus. And if they have antibodies, and that shows that they're immune, they're also being tracked, obviously, for side effects. And, and they're going to look at which of those doses, of the three doses, is most effective in, um, in giving immunity. So if that works, and, and you know, there's there's plenty of hope that it works because they've taken you know the RNA from the virus and used that to create a, a vaccine. So so if it works, then the the real challenge from that point is to get it manufactured and out to to people. And I think when you're hearing you know, 12 to 18 months, a, a lot of that um, has to do with you know the way vaccines have to be prepared traditionally. I think there are those who believe that they can accelerate that process by different uh, techniques and methodologies. And if so, then uh, they may be able to get a vaccine on the market in, in 12 to 16 weeks rather than, uh, you know, the, the longer timeframes. And my sense is with, you know, everything aligned here, economics and polit political as well as medical and scientific all aligned to solve this problem. I feel hopeful that we'll have a vaccine much sooner than uh, what's predicted. That's terrific. Well, uh, maybe that leads me to my my last question, uh, uh, and and uh, I, I wanted to end on a high note. Maybe I should skip the last question because that's <laughs> a high note. But people are quite scared, and and there is a sense of panic in the air. Uh, I'm going to talk later about other economic dislocations that I've been part of, and the palpable sense of fear and unease is is the same, and this time it affects everybody in the country. Uh, can you leave us all with the perspective on, uh, you know, on where we go from here, words of advice, and uh, 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 feel free to have an optimistic spin on it? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I view what we're doing as somewhat of a, a patriotic reaction. You know, we, we all are doing this and in, in, uh, in inconvenienced to protect, you know, a group that of us that isn't a terribly large risk group, you know, but we're all doing this together. We're all feeling the same um, kind of pain points and so forth. But for the vast majority of, of us, uh, you know, this will come and go, and it'll be an inconvenience in terms of acquiring immunity, um, whether that's either 
by getting the virus and recovering, and that's what most of us will go through or, or later through a vaccine. So, you know, I would, I would just have you remember who the risk group people are and, and uh, you know, be aware that, you know, the, the older people need to be protected from the rest of us. And um, I don't mean any disrespect to, to those who fit that age range. Um, you know, some of these viruses actually go after children. This one doesn't. Um, so you're the, you're the target this time. But I do believe that all that we're doing will change the trajectory and those who need care will get the care. And I also believe that with our health system in the United States, that the mortality rate will be much lower than other countries. We have better resources, better treatment, better, better uh, technology. So I, I think in the end, um, this is all gonna be um, put in the past as, as something that we had to do. We all came together and did it, and, uh, and we'll be proud of ourselves for that. Well, Dr. Barn, thank you so much. That was uh, uh, terrific uh, and, and incredibly informative uh, for, for me as the as the one asking the questions, uh, and I assume for everybody on the call. So I'm going to shift gears here, uh, and we're going to move to the economic and investment ramifications of uh, not just the virus, but the reactions and the things that have been set in motion to try to uh, slow its movement. Uh, we have uh, on the phone uh, Jimmy Chang. Uh, who's the chief investment strategist for Rockefeller Asset Management. And Jimmy and I are going to uh, run through some questions uh, that I'll ask of Jimmy uh, that will focus on economic and uh, investment side of the equation. And then, uh, as I said at the outset, Jimmy will turn the tables and he'll ask me a few questions at the end where I will try to pull this together uh, and uh, and wrap it up. So, Jimmy, the, the place I want to start uh, is to uh, is to give you the credit due. You were early in raising the risk of the coronavirus, uh, leading to uh, e economic challenges uh, uh, in places like the United States and around the world. Uh, there were for a while there, there weren't a lot of people uh, in that bucket. Uh, and in fact, the market, as everybody knows, traded up right through the middle of February. Uh, and actually, during that time. Uh, sometime in the first six weeks of the year, Larry Summers said, and I'm not picking on Larry here because this was true at the time, that uh, if um, uh, World War III broke out, the market would buy the dip. Um, and that was the mindset right up through the middle of February. Uh, S&P hit an all-time high uh, a month after the Wuhan lockdown. So the question for you, Jimmy, is what alerted you initially? Why did you become so concerned so quickly? Uh, good afternoon, Greg, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, I always look at the world through a fairly simplistic lens. That is, the U.S. and China are the two engines that drive global growth. So I've always paid a lot of attention, close attention to what happens in China. As you know, the Chinese government is obsessed about economic growth. So, so for them to shut down Wuhan, and then later the Hubei province, and then that extended to the entire country, there must have been something seriously uh, wrong, uh, you know, seriously challenging with this virus for them to sacrifice economic growth. And I also thought that at the minimum, even if they contain the outbreak, just keep it in China, that would have affected global supply chain anyway, which would start to affect industries outside China, 
in the coming weeks. Um, so unfortunately, uh, my, my, my worst fear turned out to be true and we're not confronting this global pandemic and, and, and its economic impact. Yeah, so Jimmy, uh, to follow up on that, you, you, you've traveled to Asia frequently, including China, but not limited to China for, uh, for many years. You have many local contacts there. Um, what are you hearing now uh, from contacts on the ground in China? What, what has changed and uh, what is the current situation in, in China, which everybody's focused on, uh, given, as Dr. Varn said, we're, we're looking at the places that were ahead of us for, for lessons and hopefully for trajectory. Yeah, you know, there is hope. In fact, it's interesting that my contacts in China are actually contacting me, offering me advice and support. Uh, basically, life is gradually returning to normal in China. Uh, people are returning to work, uh, be that factories or offices. Uh, restaurants are open. Uh, takeout businesses is extremely strong. And in most restaurants, tables are set at least one meter apart for social distancing. Uh, some cities are actually considering opening bars and theaters. And the important thing is everyone wears a mask there as the first line of defense. And given that they've all come out of this uh, kind of a self-quarantine period for about a month, you know, nobody's afraid of being infected by others. And ironically, uh, their biggest worry right now is that overseas travelers will bring in another round of outbreak. So, so they're actually putting all travelers from abroad on a 14-day quarantine once they land in China. So, so they continue to be very vigilant, but life is getting back to normal. That's really great to hear. Jimmy, can you talk about, because again, you have uh, direct on-the-ground contacts there and, and a lot of insight, uh, and Dr. Varn talked about this as well. Can you talk about uh, Japan and why the experience there uh, has been so different, and, and is it in fact as different on the ground now as, uh, as it appears to be? Yeah, I just spoke with a friend of mine in Tokyo two nights ago, and basically said there's no mass panic, uh, there are no lockdowns, Restaurants are still open, but certainly the traffic has been down. Uh, people are not travel as much. Uh, air, uh, you know, uh, you know, airlines, uh, you know, certainly are being hurt just like airlines here. Uh, and, and everyone wears a mask. In fact, even without, uh, you know, flu or the cold, the Japanese tend to wear a mask uh, during the season for hay fever reason. Uh, they, you know, they're about to enter the cherry blossom season. Um, they're actively doing. Uh, you know, the, the, the contact tracing to limit the outbreak. Uh, they're working really hard on it because Prime Minister Abe still hopes that the Olympics will be held this summer in Tokyo. But of course, that's a big question mark. Uh, so my friend actually took his team out for drinks the other night, two nights ago, um, you know, at a bar, uh, even though there were not that many people there. Um, so, so people are still going about, uh, you know, fairly normal, but certainly have cut down contacts and, and, and people are wearing masks. And so again, there's just no panic there. And, and Jimmy, what about uh, the other example? Uh, and again, Dr. Varn had a good perspective of this as well, but what about South Korea? Uh, what, what's different there? Yeah, South Korea has a different approach. They have been very proactive in testing everyone who wants to get tested. So, so they actually have set up drive-through kiosks where you can drive through and get your, uh, you know, saliva, you know, swapped and they will send you the results. And, and once you're infected, they, they will use big data, use technology to track you and to quarantine you. 
Um, you know, at this point, most people are practicing self-distancing by staying home. But again, there's no panic. Restaurants are still open. Um, you know, offices are all still open. But of course, a lot of people have chosen to work from home. Um, so, so again, these are good signs that, you know, life can get back to normal with proper preventive measures and responsible behaviors. Yeah. But Jimmy, let's go to the investment side. Uh, you've obviously been monitoring it closely. We all have. Um, we're in uh, what is, um, from a math standpoint, the sharpest sell-off in U.S. history. The the fastest time from peak to, uh, you know, I think it was 30% off, uh, which is part of the shock to the system to all of us, including everybody on the phone, how quickly this has come to pass. So, what do you see? First of all, can you talk a little bit about that and about this? bear market uh, relative to other bear markets. And then, um, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the, the market, uh, you know, from here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go so far as to ask for where it's going to go because it's just so hard to, to call in any kind of uh, near-term time frame. But can you put this in context of other bear markets and other sell-offs and talk a little bit about uh, uh, where we go from here? Yes, yeah, so, so we look at the last seven recession-induced bear markets over the last 61 years. And the average maximum drawdown from the peak to trough was 35%, and the median was 36%. Now, a 35% a drawdown in the market would take the S&P 500 index to 2200. And we can always overshoot, um, you know, because in, in, in late uh, cathartic selling phase, People just sell what they can to, to raise cash. You know, people panic. So, so you could overshoot that level. However, you know, it is always difficult to do uh, market timing, and, and the market may not stay at the trough for long. Uh, we're also looking at a tsunami of stimulus coming our way, both monetary and physical. So I will not be, you know, doing wholesale selling at this point. I do think what the market needs is confidence in our ability to contain the outbreak, to bend the curve. Because at this point, the uncertainty is how long do we have to keep on working from home? How long will restaurants stay closed? How long will everything remain shut down? But if we can start to, you know, to feel that everyone's doing the right thing to bend the curve, and if Dr. Varn is right, that the projection shows that, that we peak sometimes in mid to late April, um, I, I think the market will start to build a base and start to rally on that. Yeah, and and beyond, uh, you know, when when we look at the economic and investment side, uh, Jimmy, um, there's been a massive policy policy response here uh, to shore up confidence. Um, the Fed uh, pulling out virtually everything. Uh, Congress and fiscal policy uh, getting geared up here. Um, what what are the impact? What are the impacts of those measures on on the economy on the market? Uh, you know, certainly the traditional monetary and fiscal policy responses are very important at this stage because we're confronting this unprecedented collapse in demand. So we do need that fiscal stimulus, you know, sending money to the pockets of, uh, you know, everyday Americans, uh, you know, and, and help to, to, you know, to, you know, to relieve the pressure on businesses to keep the financial market functioning. But, you know, obviously at this point, the most important thing is decisive actions to contain the outbreak. And then we can work on, you know, rebuilding the economy. And I do think, uh, you know, there is this consensus in Washington. Uh, there's going to be collaboration between the private sectors and the public sectors, between Democrats and Republicans. So, the, you know, I, I'm hopeful that once we contain the outbreak, 
we can work on the recovery and hopefully it, you know it'll be a you know a, you know very effective policy responses there and uh, Jimmy, if we go to uh, Europe, uh, where equities have sold off even more than the U.S., you know the situation in Italy uh, uh, is uh, is pretty grim at this point. What are you watching for that market? And I know you do a lot of investing there. So, uh, what uh, signs are you watching for to see uh, a turn in Europe? Yeah, it's interesting because this is like a slow motion train wreck that we can monitor, but we can also see how things will come through on the other end. So Italy is about a week or two ahead of the rest of Europe, and the rest of Europe is about a, you know a couple of weeks ahead of the U.S. Now Italy has entered the lockdown about two weekends ago, so I'm hoping that given effective lockdown in a week or two, hopefully we can start to see kind of the flattening out of the new cases, and eventually lead to a decline, uh, you know, a few weeks out, and that I think will be positive. Uh, you know, as an inflection point, um, you know, not only for Italy, uh, but also as a you know model for the rest of Europe, and it also shows that with effective uh, quarantine and lockdown efforts here, we can come out of it. Yeah, and then Jimmy, on on, uh, on the U.S. market and maybe uh, markets outside the U.S. as well. Um, once uh, the outbreak is under control, as you said, you bend the curve. Uh, uh, what what's your outlook for the the market at that point in time? You know, usually, given that there's so much fear right now, I think once we get that indication that we can bend the curve, the first reaction is going to be a rallying. Um, but of course, you know, we don't expect a return to the old highs as the road recovery will be bumpy. And, you know, the, you know, there's a real hurt out there among small businesses, a lot of people being laid off, and corporate earnings will be, re, you know, revised down for 2020. Um, but I do think once we start that base building process, we can gradually work on the recovery. So, so the important thing right now is, you know, put a bottom to the market. And I think that will come with, you know, seeing the uh, ending side with this outbreak. Um, so so, so I, I, I do remain hopeful that uh, in the span of uh, a month or two, we can get beyond the worst of it. And then, uh, Jimmy, another thing that's been impacting the market, it, it, it gets uh, less attention, uh, not surprisingly, given the, uh, the virus and the scale of the reaction to the virus. Uh, but the oil sector dragged the stock market down. I think it was a week ago Monday. Uh, it was over that weekend uh, where um, uh, the Saudis and the, and the Russians started this, uh, this uh, price war. Um, what is the what are the ramifications of uh, the price of oil and that oil price war on uh, on our economy and more generally on the markets? You know this this to me is really a declaration of war on U.S. Shell Energy, and I think President Trump should intervene and try to stabilize uh, crude oil prices. You know, extremely low oil prices will increase the uh, deflation risk. And will lead to job losses and energy patch and uh, you know higher defaults and, and you're seeing that being played out in the high yield and leveraged loan markets uh, because they're the most at risk now, ultimately this is largely an artificial problem that can be solved uh, you know with russia and saudi arabia you know coming to terms uh, now of course the question is who will blink first and also how much influence president trump can exert on the two parties yeah, that's very helpful. 
Uh, and then Jimmy, let's let's wrap up uh, on um, again a, a somewhat upbeat note. Where, where do you see investment opportunities? Uh, you know, right now during this time. Well, I want to keep it simple. Uh, stocks of some world-class companies have come down to levels where one can expect solid long-term returns. So I think now is the time for active management to add value as we can separate the strong from the weak in portfolio construction. And, you know, as with any market turmoil, uh, you know, as Warren Buffett said, you know, said you want to be greedy when others are fearful. And also, you know, Dr. Barnes said that we could potentially have a vaccine ready before year end. You know, if that's the case, I don't think the market is discounting that scenario. If that's true, that would be very bullish. I think the market will be really off to the race once we feel that a vaccine it will be, you know, in sight and that life will get back to normal. That's great, Jimmy. Thank you so much. This has been very helpful. And as I promised uh, at the start, and I know you're looking forward to it, uh, you can uh, turn it around here and ask me a few questions and then we'll wrap up. Sounds good. So, Greg. Now, you have been through some big crises in your career uh, from the uh, dot-com bubble implosion, uh, which was followed by 9-11, and then the great financial crisis. How would you compare the current crisis to, to, to those in the past? Yeah, Jimmy, I, I answered that the other day as well uh, uh, when I was on, uh, uh, on CNBC because uh, it, it is interesting. Uh, you know, there are, are major differences here, and we all know that. This, this is the first time for everybody on a health crisis of this magnitude. It involves everybody. Every single person could get the virus, and all aspects of American life have been affected, uh, you know, really across the whole country. And, and the credit crisis, uh, my view, really occurred because of a buildup in debt across all of our society. But when it broke, uh, the, the, it really was focused on the financial sector. That's where the explosion occurred, and that's why there was actually so much anger around financial institutions. So it ended up creating a big problem across society, but the financial uh, sector itself was the, was the fulcrum. And 9-11 uh, was similar uh, in uh, uh, the sense that it was an event. Uh, this has kind of come on almost as, a, as an event. Um, and, and there were significant implications for all Americans, but it was still more focused in, uh, in the Northeast and uh, you know, didn't have the kind of everyday impact on everybody that this does. So there are major differences. But the, the parallels I want to uh, dwell on, because it's relevant for all of our clients and, and employees and friends on this call, uh, it is the same for, for me being part of it and witnessing it, uh, as I remember in post 9-11 and in the credit crisis, in terms of the fear and the panic and the uncertainty and the unease that spreads throughout all of society uh, and people wondering, are we going to get through this? And, uh, you know, uh, the, the news seems relentlessly bad, uh, which it pretty much is now. And one of the things that I've wanted to see the media do more on are recoveries, which Dr. Uh, Varn spoke, uh, spoke about. Most people who get it recover. Um, but in any event, the, the palpable fear uh, in the environment is, uh, is very similar. Um, and uh, uh, that was there after September 11th. And frankly, in the credit crisis, it was there for a pretty extended period of time for those who were in and around the financial industry. Things started to turn down in the summer of 07. And the S&P didn't bottom until March 
of 09. We had a new president. We went from President Bush to President Obama. The S&P went all the way down to 666. There was discussion of uh, the Obama administration nationalizing the, the big banks, Citi and Bank America. We lost 700,000 jobs in the month of January alone in, in 2009. So it took a while to get through that, and the sense of uh, fear and panic lasted a long time. So I think that the biggest parallel is this watching uh, sentiment uh, go all in one direction and people saying, wow, this is really a huge problem in our country. Are we going to get back to where we were? Yeah, it's great. So, so what advice would you convey to Washington, D.C. these days? I mean, to, to the White House and the Congress. You know, the, the, the area we need to focus on is, uh, is small business. Because big companies, in particular, if Dr. Varn is, is in the neighborhood of what will happen here, uh, from a timing standpoint, big companies have, in most industries, will have no problem. There will be stresses and, and a business won't be as good, but they'll get through. Uh, but we have 30 million small businesses in the United States employing 60 million people. And I, I, I've been saying this, this is us. This is the growth over the last decade. This is why this economy is the greatest economy in the world. And it's not Republican or Democrat. Senator Warren and Senator Sanders can't label these people as them. They are us. They're in every community. They're the ones employing I don't know how many Americans uh, are employed, but let's say it's 150 million, 60 million in small business. So we got to get them through. And the example that I use is that if a small business has $120 of annual revenue sales, and uh, this takes four months of that out of the equation, so you lose 40 of the 120, but you keep most of your costs, unless, of course, you fire everybody, which we would like them not to do. That's a big problem for the small business to get from where they were last month, which by the way, February we had 273,000 new jobs created in the 10th year of this recovery, which was a spectacular number. So we literally had maybe the greatest economy in post-World War II history less than a month ago. So the shock to the system is significant. We need to get those small businesses through. And the federal government, the existing federal infrastructure will struggle to do that. How do you find 30 million small businesses? How do you get them, them uh, payments? Uh, there's a, there have been some proposals around saying, let's do uh, interest-free loans to those uh, small businesses to get them through it, and they could pay it back over you know five years once we return to normalcy here. That could literally take uh, not 850 billion, but you know several trillion dollars of loans to keep that whole space alive. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to, to push is to get uh, President Trump to appoint Mike Bloomberg, or ask Mike if he'll do it, to run a new agency focused on small business and how do we keep them uh, alive? And how do they continue to employ all those 60 million Americans? Because the best thing we can do for people, sending them money to help them make mortgage and other payments is obviously critical. Delaying mortgage payments, delaying tax returns. But if they keep their jobs, that's the most important and positive thing we can do for them. And uh, that's why the, the focus on small business is so key. I agree with you, Greg. I'm buying things online right now, but as soon as this crisis is over, I'm gonna spend money locally on my local merchants. So, so let's wrap it up. Let me ask you, what are the key messages you will convey to our clients and stakeholders during this period of unprecedented volatility 
and a once-in-a-century healthcare crisis. Well, Jimmy, what I would say the summary message, and that comes across from Dr. Varn and from you and from me and across uh, our firm, is uh, uh, for uh, clients, employees, friends of Rockefeller, everybody to stay steady and calm. We can't make predictions any more than anybody else can uh, on exactly where things are going or when. Volatility is going to stay high. The virus is going to run its course. But we can say with confidence that our economy and our country will emerge from this in the not-so-distant future and will prosper again. And we can say that because we've lived through times like this. One month ago, we had one of, if not the strongest economies in post-World War II history. I just went through the math around that. U.S. dominance across technology, pharma, medical technology, financial services, many industries, energy independence for the U.S., record low unemployment, record levels of employment, so many positives. We'll get back to this. The journey in the near term will be hard and bumpy. At Rockefeller Capital Management, we will continue to provide pragmatic and thoughtful counsel and advice to our clients. And all of us will emerge on the other side of this ready and able to move forward. So I'm going to leave it there. I want to say many thanks again to Dr. Varn and Jimmy Chang for their wise and generous counsel. This uh, session will be posted on our website for those who want to recommend it to others to listen to. I want to thank all who joined us today. I want to thank our clients for their business, their loyalty. Uh, we will be there. We will continue to be there as and when you need us throughout this. Please stay safe and healthy. Keep up the best practices around social distancing. It matters. And I look forward to seeing all of you again soon and live as we get out of this. So thank you very much.